I'd like to welcome you all to this presentation. It's not the real world, the importance and efficacy of single sex education by our very special guest, Dr. Leonard Sachs. This morning's session, as well as the evening, are part of our ongoing parent enrichment program. The purpose of the program is to provide our parents with the support, tools, and network of friends they need to embrace fully the gift and vocation of being a parent. Just a few words about Ocrest, since some of you are new. The school was founded with 22 girls in 1976 by a pioneering group of parents and educators. They were counter-cultural at the time in designing a single-sex school with a character program based in the classical Christian teaching on virtue and holding that parents are the primary educators of their children. This, quote, old-school approach, if you will, now receives scientific validation and accolades from the most varied sources. We will top off our 40th anniversary year by opening our permanent campus in Vienna, Virginia this September. So we're living, what you might say, the great paradox of becoming newer and more avant-garde with every year that passes. We're delighted to have Dr. Sachs address us and our friends today. Several of us read his book, Girls on the Edge, and found a kindred spirit in his concerns for the challenges facing young women today, and his suggested practices to help them thrive. In his most recent book, The Collapse of Parenting, we saw that foundational principle of Ocrest upheld, that parents are indeed the most important educators of their children, and the profound ramifications of neglecting this in our families today. After two books and cheers written all over the margins of both books, yes, go, this is wonderful, we could no longer resist asking him to come and share his wide experience and wisdom with all of us. Now it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Sachs. After graduating from MIT and the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Leonard Sachs practiced as a primary care physician and child psychologist in Maryland for 18 years. His experiences led him to see the need for more study in the development of adolescents and the cultural influences that affect them. In 2005, he published his first book, Why Gender Matters. Since then, in an effort to help parents understand their children in their own role, he's traveled and studied not only through the United States, but to over 11 countries. He's been featured in the national and international press and has written three more books, Boys Adrift, Girls on the Edge, and The Collapse of Parenting. Although he's returned to clinical practice in Pennsylvania, he continues to work with schools and community groups, encouraging and educating parents. I will say after Dr. Sachs' presentation, he'll be taking some questions from us. Please join me in giving him a warm welcome to Ocrest today. I certainly want to uh, thank the leadership of the school for uh, bringing me here, giving me a chance to meet with you this morning. Uh, I have prepared a handout for you, uh, so you don't have to take notes. All the main points of the presentation are in the handout. Uh, I'll also be citing quite a bit of scholarly work. All the uh, citations that I will mention are in your handout, if you'd like to review the primary sources, which I encourage you to do. 
The handout is my name, learnsx.com slash oakcrest, the number two dot pdf. Um, the handout for this evening is oakcrest.pdf, and that's, of course, a very different topic on social media, which we're not going to address this morning. Uh, and I'll show you this link again. It is case sensitive. It is all lowercase, and you must include the www and the .pdf. You don't need the handout now, and I encourage you not to pull it up. Uh, it's not designed for a phone. It's designed for a larger screen. Uh, again, the point of the handout is to save you the trouble of taking notes and to provide the uh, citations that I'll be mentioning. I'll show you this link again. So I'm going to address three dimensions relevant to single-sex education. Uh, first, of course, we'll talk about the benefits of single-sex education. Uh, then we'll address the most common questions about single-sex education, like, well, it's not the real world, or it's old-fashioned, or isn't it just another form of segregation? I'll give you my answers to those questions. And thirdly, I'm going to address why parents, and not children, must make the choice of school. So first of all, let's talk about some of the benefits of single-sex education. A great deal of evidence now that girls who attend girls' schools uh, pursue a wider range of interests compared to girls from the same neighborhood attending comparable co-ed schools. In particular, they're much more likely to study subjects like physics, engineering, and robotics. Uh, girls' schools can deploy uh, girl-friendly instructional strategies. And a lot of people who are not experienced with all girls' education uh, sometimes cringe, and rightly so, when they hear about girl-friendly instructional strategies. And they'll say, what does that mean? Does that mean lots of pink? Does it mean talking about relationships in physics class? No, it does not mean that. Again, when I have the opportunity to meet with teachers, we do go through what uh, teachers at girls' schools have learned about uh, girl-friendly strategies that can greatly increase the proportion of girls who want to study computer coding, physics, electrical engineering, and so forth. Uh, we're not going to focus on those strategies this morning because this is not a presentation for teachers, it's a presentation for parents. Uh, but what do we know? Uh, what, what evidence do we have? Well. Much of this research comes from outside the United States. In the United States, girls' public schools are rare. Uh, and girls' private schools are not a random sample of the population. Uh, parents who choose to send their daughters to a girls' private school in the United States uh, do so for a number of reasons. They are not at all a random sample of the population. So comparing girls at girls' schools in the United States to girls at co-ed schools in the United States is really difficult because no matter what outcomes you find, it's very hard to be certain that any differences are due to the school formats, single-sex versus co-ed, as opposed to the parent's choice to send the kid to a girl's school. Uh, so you really have to look outside the United States to countries where there are many girls' public schools uh, and where kids are attending those schools, not because the parents chose a girl's school, but because it's the nearest public school. Um, and so that's what uh, this huge study uh, in the United Kingdom did, where you looked at almost 3,000 high schools across the United Kingdom uh, and looked at girls who are attending girls' public schools, no fees, no tuition, uh, and girls of same demographics who are attending comparable co-ed 
uh, public schools. Uh, and uh, uh, even after controlling for academic ability, uh, both girls and boys did better at single-sex schools. And a very robust finding, uh, really in all these studies, is that girls who attend girls' schools are much more likely to take advanced mathematics and physics. Quoting from their report, girls' schools are helping to counter rather than reinforce the distinction between girls' subjects such as English and foreign languages and boys' subjects such as physics and computer sciences. You, you get into this very robust phenomenon that scholars call group contrast effects. Group contrast effects uh, mean, and this is a very robust finding in our species, uh, that whenever you put humans together, uh, if there are two different groups, they tend to exaggerate uh, the group differences, whether it's Serbians and Croatians, uh, or girls and boys. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've encountered this firsthand in so many cases. Stonewall Jackson Middle School in Charleston, West Virginia, a school I visited on three occasions, uh, was co-ed, uh, as most American public schools are. And the sixth grade teacher bought, brought a rabbit into her sixth grade classroom, uh, you know, as part of the unit on mammals. And one of the girls said, oh, so cute, can I pet it? And when the boy said, I want to blow its head off with a bazooka. <laughs> and from the moment the boy said that, no other boy stepped forward to pet the bunny, even though all the kids were invited to, because the, the gender lines had been drawn. Uh, and many boys define masculinity negatively, meaning that masculinity is not doing whatever girls do. If girls want to pet bunnies, I don't. If girls want to turn in their homework on time, I'm going to stay up late playing video games instead. Um, but then the same teacher with the same kids got permission to launch a single-sex format. So she now had these kids in a girls' classroom and a boys' classroom. And then she brought the bunny into the boys' classroom, where there were no girls present, and all of a sudden all the boys wanted to pet the bunny. Um, when girls and boys are together, they're looking to see, okay, what do girls do, what do boys do? Oh, uh, girls like to pet bunnies, so the boys won't. Boys like to take apart computers, so girls won't and you uh, reinforce the gender stereotypes. And that's a very robust empirical finding. Um, another British study looked at over 70,000 girls uh, attending girls' public schools. These are not selective schools, these are just regular neighborhood schools of common format throughout England, uh, New Zealand, South Korea, uh, and New South Wales, Australia. Uh, compared with girls uh, attending non-selective co-ed schools. Uh, and what they found, after controlling for academic achievement, measured at age 11, uh, followed these kids for six years, uh, and seeing what, what gains did they make? What gains are they making between age 11 and age 17? You find, quote, that girls in girls' public schools race ahead of those girls who learn alongside boys in comparable co-ed public schools that the 11-year-old girls who subsequently attended girls' public school achieved gains six times greater than girls of the same academic ability who attended comparable co-ed public school. Um, but still some people will say, well, but that's not truly a random, a random assignment. Uh, yeah, they were neighborhood public schools, but nevertheless, perhaps there's some unknown variable uh, that has not been controlled for. I insist on a random assignment. Okay, well, we have uh, several such studies. Here's one, Ursula Kessels and Bettina Hanova uh, in Germany. The problem is that you're not 
it's not lawful in the United Kingdom or the United States to assign kids randomly to a school and not allow parents to opt out. But in Germany it is. In Germany you can randomly assign kids to various formats and parents do not have the option of opting out. Um, so that's what they did. They randomly assigned girls either to an all-girls physics classroom or co-ed classrooms and there was no opt-out allowed. Uh, again, that would be, that's explicitly prohibited by law in the United States. Uh, you have to allow parents an opt-out, um, 34 CFR 106.34 uh, and other federal regulations would prohibit that. Uh, but in Germany, they did it. And what they found is that girls randomly assigned to girls' physics were more engaged and much less likely to agree with statements such as physics is for boys. Why would they agree with that statement? There weren't any boys in the classroom. Uh, and girls discovered they could love physics. In the co-ed classroom, again, it's very easy for group, group contrast effects to take hold. And the uh, girls come to believe that physics is for boys. Presence of boys tends to reinforce traditional gender norms. We live in a sexist society. Uh, you only have to watch uh, the, the Big Bang Theory to know how pervasive this notion is that geeks and nerds are boys and pretty girls are not geeks. Um, it is a very pervasive and insidious uh, notion in our culture. And it's, it's very difficult when you bring kids in a co-ed setting to try and fight the whole weight of the culture. If the boys are not present, then the girls are much more likely to, uh, to uh, uh, pursue their interests. So there's a lot more to say about academics, but I don't like to spend the whole time on academics because there's more to the human experience than academics. And I think one of the great benefits of uh, all girls' education is not academic at all. Um, so again, a robust finding in the United States is that as girls get older, they become less likely to engage in competitive sports. That is a very robust empirical finding in the United States. Uh, and um, what can we do about it? Uh, girls are going through puberty earlier. Throughout the 20th century, the age of onset of puberty uh, declined for both boys and girls up to about 1980. Since 1980, there has been no change in the age of onset of puberty for boys but there has been a continued acceleration in the age of onset of puberty for girls. Uh, more than half of American girls now begin puberty be before their 10th birthday. Breast development begins before age 10 for more than half of American girls. That's a huge change compared to 30 years ago. And it has many harms, uh, which I explore in uh, chapter four of my book, Girls on the Edge. Uh, not only an increased risk of breast cancer later in life, uh, but also, uh, an increased risk of anxiety and depression in adolescents. Girls who go through puberty earlier are much more likely to be anxious and depressed in adolescence. And that's not intuitively obvious. Again, uh, it's a robust empirical finding, but I don't think many people would intuit that going through puberty earlier at age nine results in a higher risk of anxiety and depression at age 14, but it does. Uh, so girls at co-ed schools we see a real drop in participation in sport uh, around grade six, uh, around the onset of puberty. And when scholars interview uh, 12, 13, 14 year old girls, uh, they'll say things like, well, I forgot to bring my gym stuff. Um, day after day, they don't want to participate in gym. And you talk with them and they'll say, well, you can feel the boys looking at you and making comments when you bend over to touch your toes. They're talking about breasts 
and beehives. And the girls are more modest than you might guess, and they don't like it, and so they drop out. Uh, again, a robust empirical finding, girls attending girls' schools are much more likely to participate in competitive sports. And that's a good thing. Uh, girls who participate in competitive sports uh, do better academically than girls attending the same school who do not participate in sport. Girls who participate in competitive sports are much less likely uh, to use drugs, to use alcohol, or to get pregnant. Uh, again, that, those are uh, robust empirical findings uh, that are true for girls and not at all true for boys. Uh, boys who participate in competitive team sports are not less likely to use drugs, they're not less likely to use alcohol, and they're actually somewhat more likely than other boys to be sexually active with girls. Uh, so competitive team sports have enormous benefits for girls, which they do not have for boys. I'm not saying that, that sports are bad for boys, I'm saying that competitive team sports have huge, uh, well-documented benefits for girls, which they do not have for boys. Um, in 1972, prior to the implementation of Title IX, Title IX was passed in 1972, but the implementing regulations were not published in 1975. Um, in 1972, very few girls played competitive sports. Uh, today, at high, at, in, in certain grades, you'll find that girls are almost as likely as boys are to be involved in some sport. In 1972, uh, injuries to the anterior cruciate ligament of the knee were rare among girls. Today, they're very common. Girls playing basketball and soccer between five and eight times more likely than boys to sustain a rupture of the anterior cruciate ligament. Uh, and rupture of the anterior cruciate ligament uh, is a serious injury with lifelong consequences. If you uh, have a complete rupture of the anterior cruciate ligament, uh, you are very likely to have uh, instability and degeneration of the knee, uh, uh, resulting in pretty severe uh, degeneration of the joint by the time you're fit, uh, 30 or 35 years of age. And you don't want to have a joint replacement at age 35, because uh, they don't last uh, 50 years. Um, why is that? Okay, so the uh, doctors talk about the Q angle. Uh, if you uh, make an angle from the femur down to the knee, the average uh, boy or uh, adolescent boy or adult man has a small Q angle the average girl has a larger Q ankle that creates a torque across the anterior cruciate ligament. Uh, that's going to be, uh, so this is the average boy, this is the average girl, and that increased Q ankle creates a torque across the anterior cruciate ligament that greatly increases the risk of injury. Um, coaches at girls' schools uh, are much more likely to understand uh, the importance of the athletic stance that comes naturally to many boys. Girls without appropriate instruction are in a valgus position. Uh, and uh, most of the coaches at co-ed schools are men. Uh, again, that's not a guess. We have very good research on that. The proportion of girls who are uh, women who are coaching as a proportion of the total uh, number of coaches actually decreased over the last 30 years. Uh, so at most co-ed schools, the, co the coaches are men, or even if they're women, they're women who have had no training in gender-specific coaching. Uh, uh, they're women who have attended co-ed schools and were coached by men and are not looking carefully to see is this girl in the athletic stance or the valgus stance. This stance is going to greatly increase the risk of ACL injury. And when that girl plants, if she's not planning right,
that's when the ligament will tear or rupture. Uh, Got to be in the athletic stance. How best to warm up kids before playing soccer or basketball or lacrosse? Again, most coaches in the United States say, well, run around the track a couple times and, and, and uh, you know, bend over, touch your toes, do some stretching exercises. Uh, and that turns out to be a very reasonable approach for boys. And again, most coaches are men or are women who train in co-ed schools, and that's what they were told. Run around the track a few times, bend over, do some stretches. Turns out that that greatly increases the risk of ACL injury among girls. It's precisely the wrong thing to do. Uh, girls, because of the uh, balance or imbalance between the quadriceps and the hamstrings, the front and the back of the thigh, uh, with girls, you need to strengthen the hamstrings, not the quadriceps, when you warm up, in order to create a better balance across the ACL. So instead of running forward, you want girls to run backwards. And instead of doing stretches, you want girls to be doing uh, prone hamstring curls on the ground. And then, this is not a guess. So we have several studies now in which girls were randomly assigned uh, over for one year's time, either to warm up the way that most American athletes warm up, which is to run around the track and do some traditional stretches, or to do it the way that the orthopedic uh, surgeons have figured out would be the best way to prevent ACL injury, running backward and doing prone hamstring curls. And, and each of these studies have found that when girls are randomly assigned, girls who have a girl-friendly warm-up, you reduce the risk of ACL injury over the ensuing year by more than 80%. Um, and this doesn't cost anything. Uh, so uh, I wrote an uh, essay on this point for Psychology Today titled Girls' Needs and Gender Confusion. Uh, which is in, the link is in your handout. Because the moral of the story is that equal does not mean the same. And Americans are very confused on this point. Americans typically think that equal means the same. That if you're giving equal opportunity to girls and boys, it means you must treat them the same. Well, I think this story shows clearly that that's false. We all agree girls and boys should have equal access to sport. But if you coach girls and boys in the same way, you are putting girls at risk. You are greatly increasing the risk of ACL injury. And the result of a lack of awareness of gender differences is an explosion, an epidemic of ACL injuries among girls, which as I said, has lifelong ramifications. Equal opportunity to participate without risking injury with lifelong consequences requires that you treat girls and boys differently. Equal opportunity requires that you treat girls and boys differently because girls and boys are different. The difference in Q angle between the female anatomy and the male anatomy is not socially constructed. It is hardwired. It is genetically programmed. And if you pretend that that's not true, you're not creating opportunity for girls. You're putting girls at risk. As I said, the uh, huge benefits of participation in competitive sports for girls for boys. So the last three chapters of my book, Girls on the Edge, are mind, body, and spirit. We've talked very briefly about the advantages of the all-girls format academically. We've talked very briefly about the advantages of the all-girls format athletically. But there are some more advantages that I think are immensely important. Uh, when I say spirit, I mean advantages which are neither academic nor athletic. So for example, girls attending girls' public schools 
are much less likely subsequently to become anxious compared with girls from the same neighborhood attending girls, attending co-ed public schools. Again, you can do this study only in a country that has lots of uh, co-ed public schools and lots of girls public schools. Belgium is such a country. Um, and so that's where that study was conducted. Uh, lower risk of drug and alcohol use, that, uh, the most robust findings there, the most careful study uh, there comes from New Zealand and from the Republic of Ireland, both of which again have lots of co-ed public schools and lots of girls public schools. Uh, and then some parents will say, yeah, okay, but you know, I want my, my daughter to be comfortable with boys and, and you know, to form romantic relationships with boys. Isn't that more likely to happen at a co-ed school? Well, no, actually it's not. Uh, and that comes a lot of, uh, that comes as a surprise uh, actually to uh, older parents. By older, I mean parents over 40 years of age. Um, so uh, Neville Bruce and Catherine Sanders um, interviewed all the freshmen at the University of Western Australia in Perth. Uh, Perth is, uh, uh, has an extraordinary concentration, uh, Perth Fremantle, of uh, girls, girls' schools and boys' schools. Um, and yeah, of course, they also have co-ed schools. So at University of Western Australia, lots of kids are coming from girls' schools and boys' schools, but lots of kids are coming from co-ed schools. So they interviewed all the incoming freshmen, uh, big study, and asked them, uh, how many dates did you go out in high school? You know, dates. And, and how many romantic relationships were you in? Ongoing romantic relationships. Um, and the researchers found to their surprise that girls and boys attending single-sex schools were much more likely to date than girls and boys attending co-ed schools. They were surprised I wasn't uh, because I had visited so many co-ed schools as well as single-sex schools. And I know that at co-ed schools, kids don't date anymore. They hook up. Uh, hook up, again, for you old people who don't know, uh, hook up means that a bunch of girls go to a party, a bunch of boys go to a party, and who you're intimate with is a function of rank, order, and popularity. Uh, so that's a fancy way of saying that the most popular boy is going to be intimate with the most popular girl at the party. The next most popular boy is going to be intimate with the next most popular girl at the party. Uh, least popular boy probably doesn't get to be intimate with anyone. And that helps to explain, uh, the first time I was talking with students about this, and one of them made a comment that I've since heard many times, uh, but the first time I heard it didn't make any sense. A student in co-ed school said to me, only ugly people date. Only ugly people date. Well, that didn't sound right to me because when I was attending a public high school in Ohio in 1977, um, the more attractive kids were more likely to date. The, the least attractive kids were less likely to date. Uh, but in the contemporary context, it makes lots of sense uh, because the more attractive kids are going to be the more popular kids. That's a very robust finding in co-ed schools, especially for girls, as we'll see. Um, so if you're ugly and you want to get some action, uh, the only way you're going to get some action is to find someone as ugly as you are. Um, and that's why they say only ugly people date. Uh, and dating turns out to be a much healthier uh, uh, form of connection than hooking up. Uh, what's a hookup? Uh, 
most common form of hookup in the United States is a girl on her knees giving oral sex to boys. But it, it could mean more than that, or it could mean less than that. Uh, very seldom do American teenagers negotiate in advance what is meant. The boy says, you want to hook up? And the girl says, yes or no. Um, and then you go to a different party next week and you're going to be intimate with someone else, depending on who is there. Hookup means that there is no romantic relationship. That's the definition, and that's the most common form of intimacy among American teenagers. Um, in the two years that I was writing Girls on the Edge, I subscribed both to Teen Vogue and Cosmo Girl <laughs> at great personal cost. As <laughs> so I'll tell you, um, if you're a middle-aged man reading Teen Vogue uh, at the gate at the airport, <laughs> it doesn't matter how crowded the gate is, you will have a free seat on either side. <laughs> uh, because people assume that you're some kind of pedophile recruiter. Why is this middle-aged man reading a magazine intended for and full of pictures of teenage girls? But it, was, it really was important to do that because in almost every issue, certainly in a great many issues, uh, you read the letters and uh, a girl writes in, she'll say, you know, Brad and I have been hooking up at party after party, whenever we're at the same party, we're always hooking up together, and when we're hooking up, he's so sweet and he's so gentle and I really enjoy it, uh, but then at school he totally ignores me, pretends like I don't even exist. The only time he, he acknowledges my existence is when we're hooking up at a party. What should I do? And the expert, you know, dear Abby person who's responding says, wake up, this is not a romance, this is hooking up. Hooking up means that there's no romantic relationship. You need to tell this boy, hey, if we're, I'd love to have a romantic relationship with you, but if not, we're not gonna do this hooking up thing anymore. Uh, because hooking up and romantic relationships are uh, quite different, uh, hooking up, occasionally leads to a romantic relationship, usually it does not. Usually it is physical intimacy without any expectation of romantic relationship. That's actually the definition of hooking up. Uh, but at single sex schools, kids still hook up. So I was uh, sharing, I was talking with kids at a co-ed school, and I was telling them about a uh, boy at Georgetown Prep, across the river in uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, and the boy told me how he called up this girl, uh, who is, I think, at Holden Arms. And he said, um, which is also a girl's school, and he um, called her up and said, hey, uh, remember me? Uh, we met at the Stanley Kaplan uh, test prep. Uh, how about if I pick you up Saturday afternoon, and uh, we'll go out for dinner, and then go see a movie? And the kids at the co-ed school laughed out loud, and then they said, that's so cute. That's so leave it to Beaver. I mean, does anyone still do that? They couldn't believe that this actually happens. Uh, because if you're in a co-ed school, you don't call up a girl. It just does not happen. It would be extremely weird uh, for a boy at a co-ed school to, to say to the girl he sits next to in geometry every day, how about if I pick you up Saturday afternoon? It just doesn't happen. It is, it is extremely uncool in the United States today even to suggest such a thing. Uh, but kids at single sex schools still date. Uh, and dating is much healthier than hooking up uh, in terms of risk of sexual violence, uh, risk of sexually transmitted disease, 
Kids who date actually do typically negotiate physical intimacy and decide what they're going to do. And when, kids who are hooking up almost never do that. So dating is much healthier than hooking up. Kids at single-sex schools date. Kids at co-ed schools hook up. And I think that's important. I think that uh, parents should do whatever they can do to decrease the risk that their girl is going to be a victim of sexual violence. Uh, to decrease the risk that she's going to be involved in sexual intimacy that she doesn't want to be involved with. And one really good way to do that is to enroll your daughter at a girls' school. And I think parents need to understand that. So those are the advantages. Uh, but it's not sufficient to know the advantages. You, and that's a quick overview of the advantages, I should say. Uh, you also need to be able to answer the questions. The most common question is, uh, goes along this format. It seems to be a syllogism. Uh, the real world is a co-ed world. Uh, men and women have to work together. Uh, schools should prepare kids for the real world, which is a co-ed world. Therefore, schools should be co-ed. Seems perfectly logical. Uh, I myself made exactly that comment 17 years ago uh, when uh, Mrs. Yost brought, uh, I'll quickly tell you that story. So Tony Yost, a patient of mine uh, in Western Open Montgomery County, Maryland, um, had not been doing well. Um, he was uh, beginning really at first grade. He was not enjoying school. He was withdrawn. He was seemed to be depressed, not paying attention. Mom thought, the teacher thought, and mom thought that he had attention deficit disorder. I did not think so, but this was 20 years ago when I was significantly less arrogant than I am today. And so mom insisted that we try medication, so I prescribed Ritalin 5 milligram. That accomplished nothing. Uh, she said, well, he needs a stronger dose. I said, look, I'm not even convinced he has ADD. Why don't you go to uh, Dr. Silver uh, at uh, NIH, um, uh, world-renowned expert on ADD. Let's see what he thinks. Uh, well, Dr. Silver thought this boy did have ADD and depression, uh, so um, uh, put him on Adderall as well as Prozac. He began having temper tantrums, so he added clonidine. So now you've got an eight-year-old boy on Adderall, Prozac, and clonidine not doing well. Uh, and, um, and then I lost touch. They switched to an HMO. Our office didn't accept that. And so uh, four years passed. And Dad got a promotion, they got different health insurance, came back to the office, and I saw Tony Yost. His name was on, uh, and this is his true name, it's something with his permission and his parents' permission, um, uh, on the schedule. And uh, for a, uh, a, camp, a summer camp physical. And I said, hi. Um, I, I didn't recognize him at all. Not only is he four years older, uh, he's tan, he's muscular, and he's smiling. I, don't know, I didn't remember him ever smiling before. But I asked him my usual great to guys question with 12-year-olds, which is, uh, well, what's your favorite thing to do in your free time? And he said, well, my favorite thing to do in my free time right now, uh, probably reaching about, reading about uh, ancient Manoa. I said, what? <laughs> uh, he said, you know, Thera. I said, I'm sorry, I have no idea what you're talking about. He explained to me that 3,500 years ago, there was an island in the Aegean Sea, uh, west of the Greek mainland, uh, which was called Thera, and was home to the world's most advanced civilization of the time, way ahead of the Egyptians, uh, who would be number two in that era. Um, 
and he explained that the inhabitants of the island must have known that it was a volcanic island preparing to erupt, because when you excavate the caldera of Santorini, which is all that remains of the island, you find sheep and cattle bones, but no human bones. Uh, uh, and he explained that these people must have fled uh, to the mainland and possibly to the eastern Mediterranean. Um, uh, and that this story of the advanced civilization crumbling into the sea was very likely the source for Plato's myth of Atlantis, which Plato wrote down about a thousand years later. Uh, I said, wow, that's really interesting. Uh, can you recommend a, a book for me to read? And he did. Uh, and I read it, and of course he had nailed every detail. And I went out to talk to him about it, and I said, wow, you know, what a change. He's amazing, he's outgoing, he's articulate, he makes good eye contact, he's happy, he's doing sports. What happened? You know, three years, uh, four years ago, he was going in the wrong direction. But before Mount could answer, I interrupted, I said, I know what happened, you got him off the medications. I never thought he should be on those medications. She said, after sex, we tried to stop him with medications, and he became suicidal, had to be hospitalized at Dome Bridge. I said, all right, I give up, what's the difference? She said, we transferred him to the Heights. I said, um, okay, so he was at a very fine school before, you know, the heights, nothing wrong with the heights, but why would transferring from one school to another make such a difference? And she said, well, Dr. Sachs's other school was COVID, and the heights is all boys. And I laughed, I said, oh, come on. I said, you know, look, uh, I can't imagine that would make that much difference. I said, the, look, the real world is co-ed. School should prepare kids for the real world. So I think, you know, school should be co-ed. That's pretty obvious. Uh, I said, I'm sorry, Mr. Jones, with all due respect, I regard single sex education as an antiquated relic of the Victorian era. <laughs> and she said, Dr. Sachs, have you ever been inside a boys' school? I said, no. She said, Dr. Sachs, with all due respect, you have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Why don't you visit a boys' school? So I did, uh, at her suggestion. And as many of you know, in suburban Maryland and the district, there are many boys' schools, and I started visiting them, and I was amazed. So I was visiting uh, Landon, a third grade classroom, uh, boys' school. And the teachers, uh, the boys are all jumping up and down to spell the word abbreviate. Um, but after the boys had left, I said to the teacher, where are the chairs? Why are there no chairs? And she said, well, everyone knows when an eight-year-old boy sits down, his brain shuts off. I said, excuse me, I didn't know that. <laughs> and I am a PhD psychologist, and I do read the educational psychology literature. I'm not, I'm not aware of any research that supports your uh, assertion that eight-year-old boys know better standing than sitting. Uh, but in her defense, that is well known among the rather insular community of boys' private elementary schools, uh, that many boys, not all, but many boys do learn better standing rather than sitting. So I was really astonished at how different they were. And I've now visited more than 400 uh, schools over the last 16 years. Uh, with all due debt to Mrs. Yost, you got me started. Um, and I was amazed how, how different successful boys' schools are from successful girls' schools, and how both of them are different from successful co-ed schools, and how you teach the content, how you structure the classroom, uh, it never occurred to me. Um, but let's, let's pursue that, that syllogism, which seems very logical. Uh, the real world is co-ed. That's certainly true. School should prepare kids for the real world. That's certainly true. 
Therefore, schools should be co-ed. That's actually a fallacy. It does not follow logically. Uh, Jacqueline Grandis, an American psychologist, went to Belfast in Northern Ireland because Northern Ireland, like the Republic of Ireland, has many girls' public schools and has had for centuries. Uh, Northern Ireland, like the rest of the United Kingdom, has had a policy of school choice in place for decades, uh, beginning at grade six, so that uh, parents could choose a uh, girls' middle school or a co-ed middle school, um, which they usually choose, incidentally, based on family tradition. You go to the school that your mother went to. Um, and so, uh, Grandlis and colleagues found a cohort of girls, all from the same neighborhood, all with roughly similar demographics in terms of religion, which is important in Northern Ireland, race, ethnicity, and household income. Uh, and then they asked every girl, are you a good student? Your parents have good jobs? Are you good at sports? Are you pretty? And they found that, and then they measured separately self-confidence uh, self and self-concept, uh, willingness to take risks, etc. And they found that for girls attending co-ed schools, you only need to know one question. You only need to ask one, only one question matters as far as self-confidence and self-concept, and that one question is, are you pretty? If you're pretty and you attend a co-ed school, you're royalty. And the boys rush to open the doors for you, and the other girls see that. And that raises your status in the eyes of the other girls. Doesn't matter if you're open at sport, doesn't matter if you're getting poor grades. If you're pretty, life is good. What if you're not pretty? What if you're walking down, what if the boys don't think you're pretty? Uh, you're walking down the hall, and the boy says, ha, face looks like a pizza, you're such a whale. And some boys talk like that, not all boys are gentlemen. So, translation, what he just said is you have acne and you're overweight. Now, you don't care what that boy said. You loathe and detest that boy. But when the other girls see how the boys disrespect you, it lowers your status in the eyes of the other girls. Doesn't matter if you're good at sport, doesn't matter if you're getting good grades. If the boys think you're unattractive, your self-concept is in the toilet. But then they interview girls from the same neighborhood attending the girls' public school. And they find that for girls at the girls' public school, self-concept is a complex product of many different factors. Are you a good student? Good. That was positively correlated with self-concept. Your parents have good jobs. Are you good at sport? Good. That was positively correlated with self-concept. Are you pretty? Good. That was positively correlated, but wasn't the strongest predictor. It wasn't even one of the top three. The strongest predictor is, are you a good friend? Do you return your phone calls? Do you uh, keep your promises? That predicted self-concept uh, more strongly than anything else. Uh, in other words, at co-ed schools, what's most important is how you look. At girls' schools, what's most important is who you are. You can make a very good case that girls' schools are a much better preparation uh, for the real world. Uh, because the kind of job you get based primarily or solely on how you look uh, is not a job that's going to last uh, 40 years, because your looks aren't going to last. Um, uh, Britney Spears uh, is never going to be Secretary of State. Um, 
Madeline Albright attended girls' schools, K-12, as well as a women's college. Uh, she may not win a beauty contest, uh, but she was our nation's first Secretary of State. Um, and there are other interesting advantages. So I was giving a talk something like this at Common and Sacred Heart, which is a girls' school in Western Connecticut. And afterwards, a woman named Karen Quirk, and she has given me her permission to share her name, uh, shared her story with me. She is Irish. She grew up in the Republic of Ireland. Uh, and she attended girls' schools, uh, kindergarten through grade 12, and then attended co-ed university in Dublin, and then came to the United States and has lived in the United States ever since. And she said it's very easy to tell women who attended a girls' school from women who attended co-ed schools. How can you tell? She said, and this is a quote from her email, women who went to co-ed schools are more likely to cancel on short notice to be disloyal to women friends, to value friendships with men more than friendships with women. So I spoke with her and I said, what, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, I, I, had, I had this American woman who I thought was a friend of mine. We worked together um, and we were friends. And I said, let's meet for lunch uh, Thursday at noon. And she said, great, looking forward to it. And then Thursday at 11, she says, oh, I'm not going to be able to make lunch uh, because uh, uh, Ted uh, once invited me out for lunch. You know, it's nothing romantic. It's not a professional thing. Uh, you don't mind, do you? And Karen was like, well, yeah, I do mind. You just said it's not romantic and it's not important to your business and you're dumping me on one hour's notice for this man. She said that happens with American women all the time uh, who attended co-ed schools. If you find an American woman who went to girls' school, it doesn't happen. She's not going to dump you on short notice just because some man asked her to go to lunch. Women who attended girls' schools value friendships with women. Women who attended co-ed schools don't. Why? Well, again, the researchers give us some good hints as to why that might be so. Popularity at a co-ed school is determined primarily by boys. Popularity, uh, the most popular girl at a co-ed school is a girl the boys think is pretty. And that is, a, that is among the most robust findings in American adolescent psychology. To be popular at a co-ed school, you've got to be a girl that the boys think is pretty. You don't have to be in a relationship with a boy, but the boys have to think you're pretty. Because if the boys don't think you're pretty, if they're saying, oh, you're such a way, your face looks like a pizza, it's going to lower your stance in the eyes of the girls. And the girls intuit this and know that to be successful at the co-ed school, I have to please the boys. And that infiltrates everything about how they value friendships. Women who went to girls' schools know how to value friendships with other women, quote unquote. So Ashley Caspi, an American researcher who was at University of Wisconsin-Madison for many years, he's now at Duke, did some extraordinary work. Uh, again, he was interested in, he's interested primarily in uh, uh, adolescent delinquency. Why do some kids get in trouble? And he had heard about this research that girls attending girls' schools in Ireland and England are less likely to use drugs and alcohol compared to girls in the same neighborhood attending co-ed schools. But he said, well, yeah, but there still might be some differences. I mean, look at that neighborhood in Ireland. Maybe girls who attend girls' schools, the parents could have sent them to a co-ed school. They chose to send them to a girls' school, and they might not be identical. So he, he found the South Island of New Zealand. The South Island of New Zealand, uh, like the North Island, uh, has uh, many, many girls' 
public schools. But he found Dunedin. Uh, so Dunedin has lots of uh, co-ed public schools as well as girls' public schools. But what he liked about Dunedin is that girls attending the girls' public schools did not differ on any parameter from girls attending co-ed schools in terms of race, ethnicity, household income, religion, religiosity, language spoken at home. How is that possible? Uh, how could there be no differences? That is absolutely not the case in the United States. Girls attending girls' schools in the United States, for example, are more likely to be Catholic compared to girls from the same neighborhood attending co-ed schools. Um, but that's not true on the side of the New Zealand. Why then does a girl choose to attend the girls' school rather than the co-ed school? It's entirely determined by where your mom went to school. Dunedin was sent, settled more than a century ago by Scottish immigrants, and they're all still there. There's been very little in or out migration. Uh, so you go to the school your mom went to, uh, but it's a very homogenous community. Uh, and he found that girls at girls' schools were much less likely to use drugs or alcohol compared with girls attending the girls' the co-ed public school. Uh, and that that uh, difference, CE stands for co-ed, uh, that difference widens. At grade six, there's not much difference because at grade six, not many girls are using drugs and alcohol. By grade 12, that's a huge difference with girls at the uh, co-ed school much more likely uh, to use drugs or alcohol compared to girls attending the uh, girls' school. The mixed school is nothing like the adult world. That's where the fallacy comes from. The notion that a co-ed school resembles the real world because it is co-ed, it doesn't. At a co-ed school, if a girl gets totally drunk and throws up all over the front steps of the school, some of the boys are going to be really impressed and say, wow, you're about 70, she threw up all over the front steps of the school. That might actually raise her status in the eyes of some of the boys. Uh, in the real world, if you throw up all of the front steps of the office, uh, that's not going to raise your status in the eyes of the boss. Uh, the co-ed high school is nothing like the real world. Uh, it is a very bizarre and unnatural world in which all your classmates, all your colleagues are your age plus or minus one year. You know, at my workplace, where I'm employed, uh, I have one colleague who's older who listens to Frank Sinatra, and uh, another colleague who's 25 years younger who listens to Lady Gaga and Eminem. Um, and uh, at our workplace, I believe we're all married or living with somebody, uh, but in the co-ed classroom, no one's married. Everyone, every single person in the room is a potential romantic partner. Uh, and sexual or romantic intimacy is new. Uh, among adults, and, and incidentally when I say adult, based on the brain research, that means a woman over 22, a man over 30. Um, <laughs> among adults, you know, we've been there, we've done that. Uh, sexual or romantic in intimacy is not novel, and unless you have a major psychiatric disorder, you don't spend all your day thinking about it. But for 14-year-olds or 17-year-olds, that's not the case. For 14-year-olds or 17-year-olds, sexual intimacy, romantic intimacy is new. It's exciting. It's unfamiliar. And both girls and boys tend to confuse sexuality and spirituality to invest 
a romantic relationship with spiritual significance. This is true of both girls and boys. You will find a girl, you will find a boy in adolescence who says, if only I could be his boyfriend, if only I could be her girlfriend, my life would be profoundly different. I would be profoundly happier. Grown-ups know better. Uh, but it's one of the charms of adolescence that uh, teenagers think that a romantic relationship will profoundly change every dimension of their life. That's okay. That's developmentally appropriate. That's what teenagers do. Uh, but now, if you've got a co-ed classroom of 7th graders or 11th graders. Of course the focus is on whether or not Emily likes Justin. How could it be otherwise? And uh, that's the nature of the human experience. It is utterly unlike uh, the real world. And the real world, the notion of sexual intimacy with any of my colleagues is really unpleasant. No one to think about that. Uh, uh, but the co school is nothing like the real world. Um, in the adult world, everyone has completed the process of puberty. Uh, but I was in the seventh grade classroom, the poet's seventh grade classroom, and a 13-year-old girl was sitting next to a 13-year-old boy. And um, uh, the 13-year-old girl could have easily passed for a 16-year-old girl. The process of sexual maturity was complete. The 13-year-old boy could easily pass for a 9-year-old boy. Uh, the process of, of maturity had not actually begun. And the teacher gave me this little public speaking assignment where uh, all the kids, it was January, all the kids were supposed to give a little talk about something that happened to them over the winter break, at least two minutes, but not more than three minutes. And so the 13-year-old girl got up and talked about how she'd gone to the mall, and these two high school boys started following her around and trying to flirt with her, and she was really creeped out. So she went to the security guard, and the boys went away. She said, no, very good. Um, then the boy gets up, this was a few years back, and he talks about how uh, he just found out that there's going to be a seventh movie in the Star Wars series, and he's really excited because he is aligned with the dark side of the Force. Okay, between this girl and this boy, there can be no communication. Uh, she is a young woman concerned about sexual harassment. He's a little boy playing with lightsabers. Uh, the co-ed school is nothing like the real world. It's a very peculiar and artificial universe. Uh, and the second uh, fallacy there is that the school should resemble the real world. Well, it shouldn't, actually. Uh, for the same reason, the shipyard should not resemble the ocean. You know, when I fly into Philadelphia, fly over the big shipyard next to the airport, uh, and you see these uh, ocean-going tankers being assembled in a dry dock. Uh, and if you were to go to the shipyard and say, why are you building it in a dry dock? That's not like the real world. It's nothing like the deep ocean where the ship is going to sail, they said, well, of course not. They would say, if we tried to assemble the ship in 6,000 feet of water, we would drown and the ship would not be built. Shipyards should not resemble the real world. And once you grasp the truth of that analogy, you can come up with many others of your own, uh, like the nursery where you raise the tree from a sampling should not resemble the real world where you're going to plant the tree. It should be protected. Uh, the real world is brutal and harsh. You have mean bosses uh, and unfriendly workplaces. The school shouldn't be like that. Uh, the school should be different. And the younger the child, the more different it should be. Now, maybe once a kid's at university, uh, then maybe you can start approximate, uh, approximating the evils of the workplace. But the seventh grade classroom, the tenth grade classroom, should be nothing like that. Uh, and then people, the second question, it, it was old-fashioned. Uh, because indeed, prior to 1960, most adults agreed that men should be the primary wage earner and women should be homemakers. And in that era, there were many uh, 
single-sex schools, uh, certainly single-sex high schools. Nobody believes that anymore, nor should they. Uh, we all think girls should have equal opportunity, so what's the point of a girls' school? Uh, well, let me put the question this way. Uh, let's think of women who have been pioneers in this country, women who've done things that no woman has ever done before, like Condoleezza Rice, the first woman national security advisor, and the second woman to be Secretary of State. I think I already mentioned Madeleine Albright, I'm not sure why she's not there. Madeleine Albright, the first woman Secretary of State. Nancy Pelosi, the only woman ever to be Speaker of the House. Uh, Susan Rice, who was ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, Dr. Bernadine Healy, the first woman to lead the National Institutes of Health. Drew Goldman Faust, uh, the only woman to be President of Harvard. Uh, Sally Ride, the first American woman to fly in space. Um, Rosa Parks, what do all these women have in common? They're all graduates of girls' high schools. Uh, most Americans don't know that. They don't know that Rosa Parks went to Birmingham Girls, a girls' public high school in the United States. There were many such uh, in that era. Um, and you know, Sally Ride never wanted to be an astronaut. Unlike Hillary Clinton, she did not have childhood dreams of growing up to be an astronaut. She wanted to be a tennis player, a professional <laughs> tennis player. Uh, but then she got a, a scholarship to a girls' high school in West Los Angeles. And four years at the girls' high school, she discovered, I really like physics, and I'm good at physics. And then she could go to Stanford and earn a bachelor's and then a doctorate in astrophysics, where she describes how she was often the only woman in the classroom. But it did not intimidate her, because the girls' school, she found her voice. And when she found her voice, she could not be silenced. Um, Third question, isn't it just a form of segregation? Uh, there used to be a lot more girls' schools and boys' schools, and 60 years ago, in many states, white, and certainly in Virginia, white kids went to schools for white kids, and black kids went to school for black kids. So I wouldn't send my daughter to a school just for white kids. If it's wrong to segregate on the basis of race, how can it be acceptable to have a school just for girls? And this is where the brain research is, is so important. Uh, uh, so this is National Institutes of Health, longitudinal cohort study, uh, brain development in girls. Uh, you can't see the 95% confidence intervals on this slide, but they're just above and below. Uh, boys with 95% confidence intervals. I want to draw your attention to the arrow. The arrow is the inflection point, uh, roughly the halfway point in brain development. Girls reach the inflection point just before 11 years of age. Boys reach the inflection point just before 15 years of age. That's where the two standard deviations of difference separating girls and boys. That is true without regard to race, ethnicity, also income or language spoken at home. Journal of Neuroscience Research, February 2017, uh, just published, devoted their entire issue to sex differences in the brain. The link is in your handout. It, the entire issue, all 70 some articles, is available at no charge, which is a special event for this journal, and the link is online. Uh, there are innate sex differences in the brain based on sex. There are no differences in the brain based on race or ethnicity. Uh, therefore, no justification for schools based on race or ethnicity, but a very robust empirical ground for schools based on sex. Uh, age differences are smaller than sex differences. Uh, let's compare a 12-year-old girl with a 14-year-old girl in terms of their attention span, their interest, their conversational style, their tendency to affiliate with the teacher. Very little difference between the 12-year-old girl and the 14-year-old girl. But if we compare the 12-year-old girl with the 12-year-old boy in terms of their attention span, their interest, their conversational style, their tendency to affiliate with the teacher, the differences are huge, much, much larger than the age differences. Sex differences are much larger than age differences. Differences based on race and ethnicity are smaller than age differences. Differences based on sex are much larger than age differences. 
In this country, we do segregate based on age. If you come to a new neighborhood and you want your kid to attend public school, they'll say, well, your child is 12 year old, they'll be in this classroom, uh, sixth grade classroom. And you say, well, my child can do eighth grade work. They say, it doesn't matter. 12 year olds are in sixth grade. We segregate based on age without apology. It doesn't matter. Uh, we understand there's variation among 12 year olds. It doesn't matter. Every 12 year old is going to be in a sixth grade classroom. Period. That is the rule of the United States. And the ACLU is not protesting that. Uh, no one from the ACLU is saying, well, that doesn't respect variation among age groups, that uh, some 12-year-olds are able to do 8th grade work and some 12-year-olds are not able to do 6th grade work. Uh, therefore, it's a violation of their civil rights to lump them all in together. You can make such an argument. No one makes such an argument. Uh, Americans are perfectly content segregating kids based on age without regard to academic ability. And if you're okay with that, which almost all Americans are, very few Americans are on the street protesting the assignments of kids uh, to classrooms based on their age, then you can be much more comfortable with offering parents a choice of school based on sex because empirically, uh, grammar is relevant to education, like attention span, interest, conversational style, and tendency to affiliate the, te the teacher. The differences based on sex are much larger than the differences based on age. A seven-year-old girl has more in common with a 14-year-old girl that she has in common with a seven-year-old boy on each of those parameters. Like, how long can you sit still, be quiet, and pay attention? Girls of co-ed schools often dumb themselves down. Because, as I said, girls intuit that popularity is a function of whether or not the boys like you at a co-ed school. So you want to be popular with the boys. So the seventh-grade boys are all making fart jokes. If you laugh at the fart jokes, you will raise your status in the eyes of the boys. You will be more popular at the school. Uh, so this girl starts laughing at the boys' jokes, even though she doesn't initially find them funny. So C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Magician's Nephew, has a wonderful line. The trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. <laughs> if this girl, year after year, is pretending to like fart jokes, she actually ends up liking fart jokes. She's dumbing herself down because she's in a classroom with boys whose brain development is two standard deviations behind her. She's making herself more infantile than she really is. Uh, and uh, sexualization of girlhood. We are running out of time, so I'm going to have to skip uh, this stuff about sex differences in the visual system. Um, you will find the updated version of this in my book. Uh, most girls draw people, pets, flowers, and trees. Two, three, or four range on girls on the ground. Uh, most boys are trying to draw a seat of action at a moment dynamic and change human figures effect present or stick figures lacking eyes, mother, and clothes. Those differences derive from hardwired differences in the human visual system, uh, which we don't have to. Okay, so, uh, uh, okay, we'll try to get through this last question. Last question, uh, what do these women have in common? Amber Heard, Megan Fox, Angelina Jolie, Drew Barrymore, Lindsay Lohan, uh, Anna Paquin, Kesha, uh, Lady Gaga, Nicki Minaj, Rihanna, uh, that's uh, Nicki Minaj with Rihanna, uh, Ellen Page, uh, uh, Katy Perry, Miley Cyrus, that's Katy Perry with Miley Cyrus. What they all have in common is they want you to know that they are bisexual, or pansexual, or uh, not straight. Uh, that they enjoy sexual intimacy with other uh, women. And parents will say, I don't want to send my daughter to a girls' school because the worry she'll become lesbian. Fifty years ago, lesbian and bisexual women were about 1% of the American population. Today, every study interviewing girls, um, young girls and young women, 
between 14 and 23 percent of them uh, report lesbian or bisexual identity. And over the last 50 years, the proportion of girls' schools has dropped. If lesbian or bisexual identity was in any way a function of attending a girls' school, we should have seen a decline in women who report lesbian or bisexual identity. But over the same 50 years that the proportion of girls' schools has dropped radically in the United States, the proportion of young women who identify as being lesbian or bisexual has soared by about a factor of 10. Uh, so uh, that association doesn't, doesn't work. Um, and then a parent will say, yeah, but I heard at Smith College there's lots of lesbian women. All right, it, I, I think there is evidence to support the claim that a, a young woman who has identified herself as lesbian may choose to attend a women's college. But this, there's no evidence to support that at uh, middle school or high school. Parents have to decide. Uh, mother called the admissions office three weeks before the start of school and said, you know, I know we're going to forfeit our deposit. Uh, I begged, but I begged, I pleaded, I bargained, and she just won't go to the girls' school, and I can't make her. And the admissions officer shared, shared the story with me, was really upset because she said, this girl would have been a great fit for this school. She was so shy, she wouldn't talk at the co-ed school. She would have gossiped here. She would have found her voice. And the, the admissions officer was really upset. But many parents think that good parenting means letting kids decide. And so you have affluent parents who function as educational consultants, chauffeuring their kids around to various schools. And on the basis of a one-day visit, the 12-year-old is deciding what school they're going to go to. The choice of school influences your child's attitude towards every content area, math, science, language, arts, social studies, more than any other parameter that you can change. It also influences their risk of drug and alcohol use more than any other uh, changeable parameter. You cannot change their race and ethnicity or household income, which are the other factors that influence drug and alcohol use. But you can influence their peer group, their school. This is an enormously consequential decision, and yet you find well-educated parents putting this decision in the hands of a 12-year-old. And they'll say things like, well, I want her to be happy. If your daughter's attending a girls' school and says she wants to transfer to a co-ed school, ask her why. If she says, well, I'm not happy at the girls' school, that's not a good enough reason. If she says, uh, well, I, uh, I really am intent on taking AP Computer Science and the girls' school doesn't offer it, that's a good reason. That's a good reason. But why is she not happy at the girls' school? Maybe because the girls' school has some rules that are not enforced at the co-ed school. Maybe because she thinks she would be more popular at the co-ed school because she's pretty and she knows that pretty raises your status at the co-ed school in a way that it does not. Maybe she doesn't know. Maybe she thinks all the cool kids are at the co-ed school. It's not a good enough reason. Parents have to make this call. At a girls' school, it's much easier to create a culture in which the focus is on who you are rather than how you look. So if girls' schools are so great, wrapping up now, why are there so few of them? So uh, Rich McPherson and his colleagues asked me to speak to prospective parents when they launched the, the uh, Avalon School uh, about 10 years ago in Gaithersburg. Uh, and I spoke to parents, very different talk, uh, about the advantages of a boys' school, uh, boys' elementary school specifically. Uh, and afterwards, husband and wife came down to talk to me, and uh, the wife said, how do you say this is a really good talk? And the husband said, yeah, better than we expected. Uh, and they said, I'm going to go home and, and share this information with our son and consult with him and see what his thoughts might be about perhaps attending a boys' school. Talking to the parents, I learned their son was eight years old. I said, don't go home and consult with him. 
Just tell him he's going to a boys' school. Look, whether the child is eight years old or 12 years old, what happens when you say to your kid, hey, how'd you like to stay at the school where you're at with all the kids you know? Or would you like to go to a different school in a different part of town with kids you never met and a format you never experienced? I would hope the kid would say, I'll stay at the school where I'm at. Because if he's going to say no, I'll take the plunge. Look, look, most human beings prefer the known over the unknown. And if you frame the question that way, uh, they will choose the known over the unknown, as they should. And what is this kid, eight years of age or 12 years of age, supposed to say to their friends when their friends say, hey, why are you leaving us to go to a different school that's single sex? What is the eight-year-old or 12-year-old supposed to say? Well, I thought there'd be fewer, fewer distractions in my studies of Spanish. Well, that's ridiculous. You have to allow, allow that kid to say, hey, I didn't want to. My evil parents made me. Uh, so I did a little study with the National Center for Educational Statistics. We found that, uh, look, in 1972, most Catholic high schools were single sex. Between 1972 and 1997, 85% of American Catholic schools uh, that were single sex ceased to be single sex. Uh, the most uh, common format was that St. John's, the boys' school, would start accepting girls, and a few years later, St. Mary's, the girls' school, would start accepting boys. Next most common was that St. John's and St. Mary's would merge, usually becoming a new school called St. John's, and St. Mary's would vanish. Uh, the uh, least common would be that one or both schools would go out of business. Uh, why did that happen? It happened because 50 years ago, parents said, son, this fall you're going to the boys' school. He was going to the boys' school. His consent was not required. Uh, but today, parents don't instruct. They ask. They say, what do you think about going to a boys' school uh, this fall, son? And the boy says, what's wrong with you? You think I'm a fag? You think I just want to be with boys? That's disgusting. That's repulsive. And the parents say, okay, sorry, I haven't mentioned it. <laughs> Kids are not competent to choose the school. That's why they have parents. Kids will choose a school based on where they think they'll have fun and where they think they'll be popular. That's fine. They're kids. That's age appropriate. They're 12. They're 15 years of age. That's what they care about. That's why parents have to make the call. Parents are best equipped to determine what school is best for my child. And then the parent has to make the call. And if your daughter's been attending a girls' school for a few years and says, hey, I've done my time at the girls' school, I want to go to the co-ed school because, you know, it's more like the real world. Um, the parent has to say, I hear what you're saying, I understand what you're saying, you're staying at the girls' school. <laughs> because the parent understands the risk of drug use, alcohol use, sexual intimacy, much higher at a co-ed school. You can explain that to the daughter, you may not persuade her, but this has to be the parent's call. Uh, again, many parents have stepped away from that obligation. One of their obligations as a parent is to choose the school. Many parents have stepped away from that obligation. Why did that happen? That's one of the questions I address in my book, The Collapse of Parenting. Uh, revised edition of my book, My Gender Matters, comes out in August. That's revised edition of my book, Boys Adrift. Again, the link.